Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. This is Shannon, and tonight I am here with Sarah and Stacy. Yes, the S's are back. And we... Yay. <laughs> yay for the S's. And we are going to share with you some of our favorite enemies to lovers books. By the time this posts, it'll be a little after Valentine's Day, but that's okay because there's always always a reason to read romance novels. So I'm going to get into the usual housekeeping information, then Sarah will start us off, followed by me, and then Stacy will end the round. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. So I don't know about you guys, but I really don't think we can have an enemies to lovers episode without talking about a book with the word enemy in the title. It's true. So I, I, yes, well, and how better to start off an enemies to lovers episode than by talking about Kristen Callahan's Dear mm. Enemy. My One of my, I love this book so much. Um, if you look at the synopsis, they call it a smart emotional contemporary romance and it truly is it is a story of delilah who was kind of an awkward brilliant intelligent didn't march to anyone else's drum child who grew into a teenager and then into a woman who was the same and she has this kind of repugnant beautiful older sister who's not very nice and just obnoxious. And they move into a new neighborhood and they're walking around and they meet a boy. And the boy is Delilah's closer to Delilah's age, but he is just about as repugnant as Delilah's sister, Samantha, and they hit it off. So Thus begins the next few years of misery for Delilah because Samantha and Macon Saint are like the best of buds and then they date and they love nothing more than to torment Delilah. And one day 
towards the end of high school, something very bad happens and they break up. Samantha and Megan break up and she does not see, she calls him Saint. She doesn't see Saint again for about 10 years until one day, now she is a chef and she's doing wonderful things and living a very confident life. And then she gets a text from Saint out of the blue. And it is to let her know that Samantha stole something that was very important to him. And she needs to help him get in touch with her so that he can get it back. And Samantha has grown up to be quite a repugnant person. And she is nowhere to be found. And Delilah is very stressed out because her mother, who has kind of a weak heart, she doesn't want to distress her. And so she begs Saint to allow her to move in with him and let her be his chef and his assistant. Because in the last 10 years, Saint's been pretty busy. He is now an up-and-coming Hollywood star. And he has gone through his own kind of experiences in the last couple years, and he is struggling. And he decides that even though Delilah hates him, that he is going to let her move in with him, which he does. Because even though she hates him, it just feels so much like home to him to have her snark bantering with him and rolling her eyes and hating everything he says. And the longer Delilah lives in his house and the closer she kind of works with Saint and the more time they spend together, as so often happens in an enemies to lovers book, all those hatred vibes begin to change. And suddenly everything she thought she knew about Saint is kind of turned on its head and she doesn't quite know what to think. So I love every Kristen Callahan that I read, but this book really, really stood out for me. The characters were really well-written, very complex. The story was so great and the slow development from enemies to lovers with some very minimal teenage flashbacks, which I appreciated because I really, really get irritated with like long teenage chapters in a, in a book. Um, it was such a well done book and I just, I loved it so much. So if anybody else is interested in reading Dear Enemy by Kristen Callahan, I can basically almost guarantee you with a hundred percent accuracy that you will not be disappointed. Oh, I know. And, like I just, anyone who hasn't read it, I'm just feeling like excessive amounts of envy because you get to have the experience of reading it for the first time. And now it's a reread for me, but oh my God, just reading it that first time was something special. So I am changing things up here for my first pick because I have to talk about some urban fantasy. Ooh. Yeah, you do. Yes. So my first pick tonight is Dark Moon Rising, Riley Jensen, book one by Carrie Arthur. And I have to say that Carrie Arthur way back, gosh, I read this for the first time, I want to say in like 2007, 2008. Um, And I am currently 
I've reread the first three books in this series, and I will be finishing this up um, sometime soon, I hope. But this is set in Australia, and our main character is, of course, Riley Jensen. And Riley is kind of an interesting character in this world because she and her twin brother are half werewolf and half vampire. And this in like this world that Arthur has created is basically an abomination. So when they were young, they were cast out of their mother's wolf pack for being part vampire. And so now they've pretty much decided that they have to sort of hide this part of themselves. And so most people who know them just view them as wolves. And Riley's brother Roan is a kind of like a like a secret operative for this organization that sort of protects humanity from supernaturals. And they really want Riley to work for this place as well, but she has a lot of misgivings about this and doesn't want to do it. But in the beginning of this first book, she has been sort of compelled by a series of, of events that I don't want to tell you about for fear of, of spoiling the joy that is discovering this book for the first time. So she's now kind of compelled to work for this organization. And as she's doing so, she meets a man named Quinn. And Quinn is a vampire. And Quinn holds a very, very deep grudge toward any kind of werewolves. And so he doesn't treat Riley very well in the beginning. And Riley is very understandably upset about this. And so she and Quinn just don't get along. Well, as things go on, not only in this book, but in subsequent books, you kind of see them spending more time together and you get to the bottom of why Quinn has such a deep and abiding hatred for werewolves and you get to sort of understand you know what makes him act in some of the less palatable ways that you see um, in Dark Moon Rising. Riley is a very very complex character. I like her a lot. Um, She embraces kind of both halves of herself even though there's one that she has to kind of keep secret like she doesn't feel shame for who or what she is. She knows that society as a whole doesn't think much of it, but she has a lot of respect for like all of her abilities. Um, This is like a nine book series and the relationship between Riley and Quinn um, kind of is like an overarching theme here. You definitely get the sense that they will end up together. So I'm not like spoiling much by telling you that, but it is something that you see like constantly growing and changing as the mm. series evolves. Mm. I love Carrie Arthur so much. Um, this series <laughs> is awesome. I also like her, her Lizzie Grace series. Um, she just does a lot of very unique stuff in a genre that is sometimes saturated with shapeshifters and vampires and witches. I love sort of the breath of a fresh air that Arthur has given the genre with her work. So this is Dark Moon Rising, Riley Jensen, book one by Carrie Arthur. Okay, I need to dive into this series. Me too. They are so good. You told me a while ago that I would like this. 
So this is one of the first books I read in 2022. And I was so delighted with it. And I just wanted everybody I knew to read The Spanish Love Deception by Elena Armas because it was so good. And among this group on this podcast this evening, I am still the only one who has read it. And so (laughs) it's kind of hurting my soul. Let's talk about Catalina. So she is having kind of a big fat dilemma. She is living in New York City and um, she's working and everything there. But, you know, her family back in Spain still kind of talks about her as if she's had some sort of epic tragedy in her past, as if her life is just not complete because she hasn't had a boyfriend in a long time. And it's sort of like a, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the way you talk about like a funeral situation, like, oh, oh, (laughs) poor dear. And so at the beginning of the book, she's flipping out to her best friend at work because, oh my God, her cousin's getting married in Spain in four weeks. And she's going to have to go back to Spain and face the past that was so traumatizing for her. She uprooted and moved to New York and she has to do it. For a wedding. And alone. alone. So she's decided she's going to get a fake boyfriend to come with her, a fake American boyfriend to come with her to this wedding that she can sort of pretend is like the love of her life to get her family off her back. Well, of course, her nemesis, the annoying, oh, pain in the ass, Eric, Eric, delete. The annoying, pain in the ass, Erin Blackford overhears her speaking to her friend and just butts his face right into her conversation and tells her things like how delusional she is to think that she's going to actually get a boyfriend, fake or otherwise, in the next four weeks. But don't worry, because he has a really good idea. He'll so kindly step in as the fake boyfriend for her. Well. Lena thinks that will never happen. Ugh, he's so repulsive. She can't even imagine being around him for three days, let alone pretending that she actually likes him. But then time moves on and the day of her departure for this wedding draws ever closer and her desperation mounts because, oh my God, what is she going to do? And she is horrified when she realizes that Aaron Blackford is, in fact, her only option. And all he's asking of her in exchange is to go on one fake date with him prior to going to Spain with her. So she sucks it up and decides that certainly she can pretend if it'll get her family off her back, if it will stop, make them treating her like a tragic, tragic person. And so she and Aaron travel together to Spain, to the small town where she grew up. And it's very confusing there because he's just so charming and he's just playing the part of fake boyfriend a little too perfectly and supporting her and caring for her and protecting her when the gossip is getting bad. And they're just having these romantic moments that feel more real than they are supposed to. 
And could she have maybe possibly been mistaken about Aaron Blackford? Is he not quite the wart that she's thought he was? (laughs) So I'm not going to answer that question for you because I want you to read the Spanish love deception and make that decision for yourselves. But here's what I will tell you. This book is far more incredible than the sort of old fashioned Harlequin-esque kind of title will lead you to believe. I never, I would have just skated right over this book, but I read a review by accident when I was looking for something else and it caught my interest. And I bought this book without actually having heard none of the buzz about it. I didn't know anything about it. And I just picked it up one day and it's like the best sort of chance purchase sort of spontaneous purchase I've ever made. And it's so much more than the rom-com that it is, um, you know, kind of put in that kind of pigeonhole to be. It's a lot about family and dynamic relationships and, you know, kind of figuring out that someone is more than they appear to be and learning about strengths you didn't know you had and learning about Oh, so many gorgeous things. And if you like enemies to lovers, fake relationships and slow burn. Yes. Some sexy, sexy, sexy times. This is the book for you. And if you like me feel very uncomfortable at the idea of like athletics at a bachelorette party, this book is for (laughs) you. So please go forth and purchase or borrow or read. The Spanish Love Deception by Elena Armas. It is amazing, and I hope you love it as much as I did. Is anyone going to be shocked? It just, I don't know. I was shocked, actually, that I am talking about a book <laughs> that has the word billionaire in the title. <gasps> Stop. Billionaire. I know. I hate billionaires. And I loved this book. Thank you, Stacy. Oh my gosh, you're so welcome. <gasps> I know. That's why I'm putting it on here. I'm putting it out there into w- the world. I was worried you weren't going to acknowledge the amazingness that was me recommending this to you. Well, yes, so thank you. I am because I laughed at you because the name of this book <laughs> is Breaking the Billionaire's Rules. Billionaires <laughs> of Manhattan, book three by the one and only and very amazing Annika Martin, <laughs> who I feel like needs more love in this world because she is so amazing. She probably gets a lot of love, but I don't know. I feel like she should get hyped more. Me too. So this is kind of billed as a rom-com and there are parts in it that literally made my stomach hurt so bad that I couldn't sit up straight and I tried to call Stacy to say a line <laughs> from the book and I couldn't make any sound but like the squeaking wheeze. So this is the story of Mia. And Mia is an actress in New York. And her most current goal is to land the lead in a revival of Anything Goes on Broadway. So she's spending a lot of time in the evenings, like dancing, singing, working on on several different audition pieces to showcase her talent. And Mia, by day, because even aspiring actors who are amazing must eat and pay rent and do things that are not very glamorous. 
So she works for a delivery company (laughs) where you have to dress up like a cat. Okay, that's my job right there. I know. Shannon, would you love to dress up like a cat? Yes. (laughs) Yes. But the only problem, yes, but would you like to do this? So you dress up like a cat and you deliver food all over the city from different food trucks and you go to different buildings and you deliver food. But you will get fired if when you are leaving each delivery, you do not go meow or some type of meow. (laughs) You have to meow. And (laughs) so (laughs) it is to Mia's absolute and utter horror when she finds out that she is going to have to deliver to the building of a now billionaire, Max Hilton, who used to be her nemesis, who is her nemesis still. They went to the same very prestigious performing arts high school. She was a scholarship kid. He was the son of amazing musicians. And they hated each other. They would play tricks on each other. They would try to sabotage each other all the way through high school. He made up a piano song incorporating her kind of donkey braying laugh and got everybody else to do it. She used to put like, she put like a mouse, like a, like a toy mouse in the piano for him to find when he was playing like a big piece. They have, they just have this rivalry until that one beautiful summer when both of them were in, not through school, Oklahoma, and she was Lori and he was Curly. And that whole summer was like this beautiful, beautiful, like friends, love, amazingness until all of a sudden it wasn't. It wasn't. Oh. And now, now, 10 years later, after the Oklahoma debacle and after some other things that have happened, she has to dress up like a damn cat and deliver lunch to her nemesis, who is now a billionaire. And would you like to know why he's a billionaire? Because I'll tell you. It's because he wrote a book right after graduating high school, 10 Golden Rules for Landing the hottest girl in the room. Barf. Wow. Vomit. It's awful. And it's disgusting. And it fills her with rage. And she talks to her roommate and some more friends because a lot of this book is also like an amazing group of female friendships. And they decide they're going to turn these rules against him. And Mia is going to work all these rules on Max. She is going to bring him to his grovelly knees. Not just his knees, his grovelly knees. So she makes her cat costume sexy and she struts in there and she meows like no one's business. And then she has to start spending more and more time over the book with Max as she tries to turn his rules on him and tries to bring him to his grovelly knees only to realize that he is a lot more than what he seems. Maybe he's a lot different than the person that wrote that awful book. And maybe they don't hate each other so much 
after all. So this book filled my heart with so much joy. There are, like I said, a lot of really funny parts. And from the title, you think it's just going to be like fluffy whipped cream, you know, just like vapid, but delicious with that, like, you know, airy. And it's not, it's so much more than that. I just really recommend if you want a more fun enemies to lovers book, but with a little, little bit of an edge, would you say that's accurate, Stacey? Fun with an edge and good character development. Read, and I can't even believe I'm saying this title, Breaking the Billionaire's Rules, Manhattan Billionaires, book three by Annika Martin. So I save these books actually for like when I'm having a bad day. Um, and then I pull one out. I, I've read three and I have three left to read. And I, I didn't realize there were that many. There are six. Yeah, there's, there are six. They cheer me up so much. Um, this, I love the book about me and Max. I think it might, oh, it might be my favorite, but I love them all. So I can't say. So my next pick is a Shakespeare retelling in the form of a contemporary romance. This is Raymond and Julieta. Love and Tacos, book one by Alana Quintana Albertson. This is the first book in a series that follows three brothers, and each of the books will be a Shakespeare retelling of its own. This one, if you couldn't tell from the title, although I'm guessing you can, is a Romeo and Juliet retelling, although I can assure you it does have a happily ever after ending. So no one knows. So this is set in California during the Day of the Dead celebration. So if you're looking for something with kind of like that nice fall feel, this kind of does that. Like Southern California in the fall is not like fall in the Midwest. But I can picture like, you know, all the fall stuff that we would be having where I live um, when Day of the Dead is celebrated. So before this story begins long before the story begins. Two people were involved with one another in Mexico. This relationship ended and the man left Mexico and went to the United States, taking with him something that isn't his. (gasps) And that is a recipe for fish tacos. And through this recipe, he makes this like huge taco empire like think like taco bell but like a little better um del taco maybe (laughs) and he's like so rich now he's married he has three sons this business it's just like it couldn't be doing better so his oldest son is raymond and he is getting ready to kind of take over the business from his father. You know, his father's getting older. He doesn't necessarily want to let go of the reins, but Ramon is feeling like, you know, it's time for him to sort of step up and breathe new life into the business. So he is told by his father that he has to go to this Day of the Dead celebration and he has to basically like talk to the mayor and talk to all these reporters, basically make sure that this sale that is about to go through, that everyone knows that this is going to you know, belong to this like taco empire. And it's this historic neighborhood with 
all these buildings that are owned by individual small businesses. And this whole block will be demolished when the Taco King people um, take it over because it's going to be like this huge, like the best and the brightest Taco King location that ever was. It's called Taco King? It is. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Julieta works at a small kind of authentic Mexican restaurant. And she is serving tacos at this Day of the Dead celebration. And she takes a break. She walks out to this garden and she's kind of like getting some air, thinking back about her father. This is the first year um, that she's celebrating Day of the Dead without him. And she's trying to figure out like how she can honor him appropriately. She is standing there and she's, you know, kind of sad. And Ramon approaches her. They are um, in costume for Day of the Dead. And so they don't, they don't know each other. And they they won't recognize each other when they meet at a later date. And they don't tell each other their real names. They kind of joke and say, you know, like he says, oh, my name is Romeo. And she laughs and she says, okay, then I'm Juliet. You know, that's fine. And they want to have a one night stand. They figure they're just going to like hook up. It'll be fine. He sings her a song in the garden (laughs) And she has a little bit of like a second thought about this because, you know, it's not always safe just to like go off with a stranger, but she decides like her, her life isn't always great and full of fun. So she's going to spend some time with him and see what happens. Well, what happens is when she gets to his house, she sees a picture and this is a very bad picture for her to see because it's a picture of him and his brothers with his father. And as soon as she sees his father, she knows exactly who he is. And this is very bad because his father stole the fish taco recipe from her mother years and years ago. So now how will they be able to like spend time together and enjoy each other's company when there's all this stuff in the past, but also he is buying this block of buildings, one of which is her mother's restaurant. This is like absolutely no good, right? Like how will they overcome this? And I I can't tell you how they will (laughs) because that would be spoilerish and bad. But this was just such a delightful book. So much great Mexican food was mentioned. Um, I told my partner that we had to actually like eat tacos last week when I was reading this because the descriptions of all the Mexican food are just like so amazing. I also really liked the family dynamics, both with Ramon and his brothers, as well as Julieta and her mom. Um, I think they just, Albertson does a great job of showing the complexities of like all these characters. And that even though, you know, people have done like bad things, does this really make them like terrible people or is there some way to kind of redeem some of what they've done? I just really enjoyed this and I can't wait to see what she does for the other brothers um, in this family. So this is Ramon and Julieta, Love and Tacos, book one by <laughs> Ilana Quintana Albertson. I need this look like in my life. Me and too. The food and the. Oh, it's so good. Oh, I love books about food. It's 
like it, it's a little frothy, right? Like it has, it has a certain amount of depth. Like you get to, you get to know the characters. You get to like really sympathize with some of what they're going through. Um, but it's just like at its core, it's just this joyous, like happy book that I'm so glad I read. So I think we need to change things up just a little bit here. And I think right. what would be a better place for enemies to lovers than in the apocalypse, post-apocalyptic ah, yeah. enemies to lovers. And Beck McMaster has written a really, really amazing trilogy. When I found out that she wrote a post-apocalyptic series, I about did cartwheels because I think whatever she writes has to be great. And this was, so I'm going to talk about the first book in the trilogy and it is called Nobody's Hero, The Burned Lands, book one, again, by Beck McMaster. So this book takes place in, I believe it's 2147. Oh, I was kind of like, oh, you future books, you, well, in 2147, we're sort of um, in what I can sort of feel like is sort of like the old West. And what happened to the world was several catastrophic things, but it started with um, some sort of meteor event crashing and then had some fallout from that. And this is about almost a hundred years ago and resulting from all of this, um, another event took place that then sort of invited sort of zombie-ish creatures called revenants into the world, flesh eating dead. Now, but another unfortunate sort of side effect of everything happening to the world was that experimental soldiers who were still in the phases of testing were released from a lab quite by accident during all of this chaos. And sort of from that has come generations of a creature that's called a warg. And basically by day it's a man and by night it's a ravenous beast that just oh. needs, it needs blood and flesh and other biological urges it needs, needs, needs at night. And so Riley has grown up knowing all of her life to never be caught out in the Badlands after sunset because that's when you're going to get the revenants, you're going to get the wergs, you're going to get sort of encounters with marauding groups of humans that are more beasts than person who rape and pillage and try to steal what's everyone else's for their own. But Riley's out hunting with a young um, hunting partner of 17. And events sort of cause her to be out as the shadows are lengthening. And then, oh my God, she sees that these marauding humans are on their way to her settlement and she's rushing back to warn everyone in her settlement, her, her walled settlement that this is happening. When all of a sudden a man like basically runs out in front of her car and she hits him and oh my God, she hits him and she's flipping out, trying to make sure he's okay. When all of a sudden she realizes that she in fact did not hit a man, she hit a warg. Oh. And he takes her prisoner. I love him, 
because he's going to use Riley to get to an old friend with whom he has quite an axe to grind. And he is going to use her as his foot in the door. Well, Riley has been taught her entire life that wargs are a type of creature that needs to be avoided. They're hated. They're filthy. They're awful. They're killers. And now she's trapped with one. And dear God, is she terrified, but also desperate to get away and quite resourceful as well. This book is about Riley and Lucius Wade, who goes by Luke or goes by Wade, depending on who's writing about him or talking about him. And the two of them, kidnapper and victim, end up reluctant allies as things sort of collude to force them together to fight against a greater foe. That's all I'm going to say about this book. I'm just going to tell you that I love the series so very much. Um, it's wonderful. There's uh, very complex characters in this series. The post-apocalyptic landscape of a ravaged U.S. that is no longer bears very little resemblance to the U.S. of today. Um, also, just, you know, what things survived the five years of the darkening, what things are gone, sort of left to history. And then there's three shifters in these, in all three of these books who wonder if they are worthy of redemption. So if you like that kind of arc and found family and Oh, it's all the things, but at its core, this book is an enemies to lovers in the time of the apocalypse. This again beautiful. is, it is, it beautiful. is beautiful. This again is nobody's hero. The burned lands book one by Beck McMaster. I will tell you right now, this book is available through Kindle. Um, and I did notice that there are a few um, sort of editing errors throughout the series, yeah. but they certainly mm -hmm. did not, take away from my enjoyment. I, I sort of feel like this must've been an earlier series potentially. Um, I haven't noticed this like in her London steampunk series at all, but there were some uh, slight typos here and there and some errors that um, if you can just sort of look past that, it is a really, really compelling, amazing series that should be enjoyable to post-apocalyptic and romance fans alike. It's nonstop action with some sexy times. It's real sexy and real nonstop action. So let's go from the world of the apocalypse to the world of the triple Lutz. Ooh. Yes. All right. Let's just talk about one of my very favorite books, which is From Lukov with Love by Mariana Zapata. I love her. I do too. I love everything. She, and in fact, because I read this book to prepare for this episode, now I'm reading another Mariana Zapata that I've already read because I wasn't quite ready to say goodbye to her. And the whole reason I picked her for this episode is because uh, I just, everything she writes is just perfect. So we are going to talk about Jasmine. And Jasmine is a figure skater. And she is such a dedicated hard worker. She gets up every morning, like at 4.30, she goes and skates. Then she goes and works her job at a diner. And then she gets in more skating at the end of the day. And Jasmine just won't give up. She's like extremely scrappy. She's, she's just worked too hard to give up. But at the beginning of the book, 
she is in a really bad place. So she is 26. So in skating athlete Olympic terms, she's getting older. She was part of a um, pairs skating partnership. And the way she found out that her partner moved on to somebody else was reading it online. Oh, yes, it's horrible. So now she's back skating at the complex where she skated her whole training life from childhood till now, except, you know, she can't afford a coach. She's all alone. And every time she skates, she has to see the face of her figure skating nemesis all over the walls of this place. And it's there, his face is all over the ceiling and his medals are in a case by the front door of the complex because you see Ivan Lukov, his family owns the complex. And so she has to deal with him all the time and his like absolutely flawless amazingness. And they have been, I want to say rivals. He's been her nemesis ever since they were young. Her best friend is his sister. And They've spent a lot of time together over the years, but they just, when they get near each other, it's just like everybody just stand back because dishes are going to explode. Comments to make you cry are going to explode. They do not pull their punches with each other. And secretly, they both love every minute of it. So Jasmine at the beginning is really at a low point and she gets a note on her locker door to please come to the manager's office before she leaves the complex. So she goes in and it's heavens to Murgatroyd. It's Ivan's coach and Ivan and nobody else. And they propose to her that she become Ivan's partner for one year and he will help her win. She will be a good partner for him, but they have to pretend like they like each other. And like they, both of them, like they can't even make it through this meeting without like saying snotty things to each other. It's just constant with them. They just cannot help themselves. And she knows it's only going to be a year. But after the year, if she agrees to skate with him and be his partner, Ivan and his coach will help her find a partner. And so she thinks about it and thinks about it because she really doesn't know if she can skate with him because he just makes her that furious. And they decide, she ultimately decides that she is going to work with him. So thus begins a really, really challenging year of training and working and training and more working and more training. And she is with Ivan so much of the day, every single day. And he's doing lifts with her and his hands are all over her and she's up above his head and they have to trust each other. I mean, he's holding, you know, she's leaping into the air and he's holding her body aloft on those little, you know, they're on those skatey blades. You know what I mean? Like he could drop her. And, <laughs> and slowly as this year unfolds, they go from being complete adversaries who can do nothing literally, but talk shit to each other all the time. They're like little kids, like they can't like little kids in the sandbox that both want each other's toy. Like they cannot, they just can't be quiet. 
And then they slowly, slowly become friends. And then they become best friends. And could possibly they become more than that. I love this book so much because their relationship takes chapters upon chapters to develop. But while it's developing, Jasmine is also, without really knowing it, working on herself. She's working on relationships with her family. She feels a lot of guilt that over her skating career, she has made skating her number one priority to the complete detriment of everything else. And so she's working on repairing those relationships, although the repairing is more in her head. Jasmine struggles always with feeling inferior. Jasmine has a learning disability and she has to work three times as hard to accomplish what other people accomplish because she, it takes her longer to memorize the programs, to memorize her rights and lefts and everything else. And she is just a really hard worker. So if you want to read a wonderful book while well, all of her books are wonderful, but in Enemies to Lovers, I highly, highly recommend From Luke Off with Love by Mariana Zapata. I love it. She does Enemies to Lovers so well. And it's not like a very quick evolution from enemies no. to lovers. This book was really good. I really enjoyed it. I read it a couple years ago and it might be time for a reread. So my next pick comes courtesy of a Facebook group. I reached out to the fabulous readers in the old school romance book club Yay. to ask for I love suggestions that group. So do I, for this episode. Um, especially historical recommendations, because I was really struggling to find something that wasn't a contemporary. And someone reminded me of this next book. This is An Unnatural Vice, Sins of the Cities, book two by K.J. Charles. Now, we here at Book Bistro give Natalia a hard time a lot (laughs) because she always tells us that we have to read things in order. And sometimes we don't want to do that. Um, And sometimes that's okay that we don't want to do that. But this time was really not okay that I didn't want to do that. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, what I will say about this is the the romance storyline and the the storyline involving these two characters is fully contained in this book. However, there is an overarching theme that took me a while to figure out because I did not read book one. It eventually did make sense to me, but it was not as smooth um, a read as it would have been had I started from the beginning. So this is the story of Nathaniel and Justin. And Nathaniel is a journalist. Um, He has very, very strong opinions. He used to be a lawyer, a solicitor, Uh, since we're in Victorian times. And he kind of grew tired of everything that was involved in arguing the law. And so he turned to journalism. And one of his favorite things to do is to expose people who are defrauding the public. And so he has turned his attention to spiritualists. And he has a lot of anger toward these people who pretend that they're able to contact the dead and they charge people huge amounts of money to supposedly like commune with the people that they've lost. 
So he wants to get these people to stop what they're doing, put them out of business. And he is after this guy that he, he doesn't know who he is really. He just knows him as the seer of London. And the seer of London is actually Justin. And Justin is not sorry for the games that he plays and the cons that he pulls. He figures that he, just like everyone else, has to survive. And he's got a good thing going. It may not be the most ethical way to make money, but, you know, sometimes you've got to do what you got to do. And he's good at it. He has learned from one of the best. And he really, like, rakes in the money. And people believe in the things that he tells them. Now, Nathaniel comes to one of Justin's seances, and he knows that this is fake, right? Like he figures, you know, there's no way it's real, but he can't figure out how these things are happening. Like the tricks that Justin is using are kind of beyond him. And he's really intrigued by this, even though he's angry and he thinks that, you know, people shouldn't be doing these things, playing these games. But both Justin and Nathaniel have ties to an aristocratic family and an inheritance that is pending. Now, this is where things get sort of bizarre. And if you haven't started with the first book, this is where you won't like fully understand things right away. And so because of the things that they know about this family, they are put in danger. Um, and so now they have to kind of put well, Nathaniel more than Justin. Like Justin is, is intrigued by Nathaniel. Um, he finds him very attractive, but he knows that Nathaniel doesn't like his choice of career. So Nathaniel has to kind of put his feelings aside and try to work with Justin to solve this puzzle involving this inheritance so that they can be safe and continue to kind of live their lives. Um, I can't tell you kind of how this all turns out, obviously, but it is a lot of fun. KJ Charles does a phenomenal job of bringing the Victorian era to life. And I think, you know, we read a lot of historicals um, about men falling in love with women, women falling in love with men. But I love KJ Charles for her willingness to show the world that heterosexuals like weren't the only people falling in love back in the day. So this is An Unnatural Vice, Sins of the Cities, book two by KJ Charles. And with the spiritualism aspect, I told you, like, I need to read this. I love. Yes. But I might start with book one simply so that I am not confused. I would recommend that. it. Well, I'm going to stay historical because Yay. there's, but there's no spiritualists in my time period. Let's go back to the Georgian the, era. Is that what it's called? The 18th century, the Georgian yes. era. And we are going to talk about the widow silence, Hollingbrook. Oh my Yay. God. <laughs> One of my very favorites. I should probably give you the name of the book first. I got excited. I jumped right in. So <laughs> we are going to talk about Scandalous Desires, Maiden Lane, book three by Elizabeth Hoyt. This book, friends, this book. I don't even have words for how much I love this book. This book is about the widow Silence Hollingbrook, 
And silence has had a pretty tough last year. For you see, a year ago, she went to speak to the river pirate, charming Mickey O'Connor, to try to beg for leniency for her husband. Well, charming Mickey is a scoundrel, and he is in it for himself and his sort of what he wants from her in order to sort of, you know, assist her husband is she has to spend a night in his palace of debauchery. And if she does this, then he will help her. Well, silence is a very devout young woman. She's a very proper woman. She grew up in a family who believes in service to others. Her, her father opened um, a home for foundling infants or for infants and foundling children. And so she's just spent her life living to help others and to just be very practical. And now in order to save her husband, she is going to have to stay one night with charming Mickey O'Connor in his den of iniquity. And so she does this. And during that night, they have dinner. And then they talk in his bed. But in the morning, he has one more requirement of poor, poor silence. He requires her to do the 18th century version of the walk of shame. Her hair must be must. Her dress must be undone. And she must walk down the street thusly to demonstrate to all that see her how thoroughly she was debauched by charming Mickey O'Connor. And despite the fact that she proclaims to her family and to her husband that nothing happened, no one believes her. No one. That was last year. Now she's a widow. Her husband died at sea without forgiving her. And early on in that year of shame and misery, she discovers a baby on her steps that she calls Mary, Mary Darling and begins to love as if Mary Darling were her own. Little gifts show up for Mary Darling. And she and Mary Darling, once her husband has passed away, they move into the home for infants and foundling children that is currently overseen by her brother, Winter. Oh, Winter. But at the beginning, so all of this I say to tell you why, to her very soul, Silence Hollingbrook hates and despises infamous river pirate, charming Mickey O'Connor, because he ruined, ruined her life, her reputation, all the things that she prized so very highly, he ruined and now, at the beginning of the book, he has the audacity to kidnap the child, Mary Darling, from the home for infants and foundling children. And so, of course, what can Silence do but go back to his palace in the rookery, in St. Giles, in the poorest, most dangerous part of London, 
to rescue her beloved Mary Darling from his evil clutches. But once in his palace, she learns that he, in fact, is the father of Mary Darling. And that Mary Darling is no longer safe away from him because his enemies have discovered her. And silence can stay with Mary Darling, but they have to do this in his palace. And when I say that she hates charming Mickey O'Connor, I'm not exaggerating, friends. She hates him for what he did to her life and now what he's doing to both Mary Darling and to her because he doesn't really care about the infant. He really just wants to keep silence close because, oh, he wants a lot more from silence than talking in his bed. (laughs) Enemies abound. The ghost of St. Giles makes an appearance. And as silence spends more time in the home of charming Mickey O'Connor, she learns that behind his rings and buckled shoes and mountains of treasure, there is a man in pain and a man who might be more deserving of her love than she at first thought. That is all I will say about this book. But if you have not met, if <laughs> if you have not read the Maiden Lane series by Elizabeth Hoyt, go forth. And what the hell have you been waiting for? Seriously, like why are you waiting? Start with the first book in the series, which Shannon will remind me of the name because I'm blinking. Wicked Intentions. Wicked Intentions is book one of Maiden Lane, but Scandalous Desires. Maiden Lane, book three by Elizabeth Hoyt is one of the treasured books that I do reread because I do love it so very much. And it is enemies to lovers at its finest in a really interesting setting. Yes, yes, it is. My final book tonight is one that a lot of people would say is in the grumpy sunshine trope. But what I love about it is the grumpy part is for sure, right? But she is definitely snarky sunshine. She (laughs) is not just like joyful and bubbly. She has some good bitey snark along with her joy. She sure does. Beautiful snark. And it is so beautiful. And so I just feel like you cannot have an enemies to lovers discussion without talking about Lucy scores by a thread. Oh, yes. I love it. (laughs) I, I bought this. I am excited. <laughs> Shannon, you will love it. There are so many great parts to this book. So this is the story of Allie Morales. And Allie Morales is really struggling at the beginning of this book. It seems to be the trend for me tonight that a lot of people are struggling at the beginning of the book. And Allie is working all of these part-time jobs. Like she seriously has like six jobs. And she just busts it all the time. Like she goes from one job to the next. She's just constantly on her feet. She's working really hard. And at the beginning of the book, you don't know why. And this is also the story of Dominic Russo. And Dominic is a grumpy, rich owner of a magazine called Label. And so, again, I did another book with kind of a kind of grumpy billionaire vibe to it, which is 
totally not like me usually. But this book is just everything. So at the beginning of the book, Dominic is struggling. He has come back to help his mother with label after his father did something so egregious that they could not hide it under the family rug. And he has been let go. And Dominic is trying to clean up all his messes. And Dominic is not having a good year either. He is just a pot of grumpy, just so grumpy. And he can't be mad because everyone's afraid of him because they think he's like his father. And so he can't, he's just, oh, he's like a geyser ready to blow. So he goes to meet his mother at a pizza place that people say is supposed to be really good. George's Pizza. And he goes into George's Pizza and he's talking on the phone to his assistant. and He's just talking away, being all grumpity. And the hostess slash server, who is Allie Morales, points at the no cell phone sign. And it's like really trying to get his attention because she's super irritated that he is not listening to her and that he is continuing to talk on his phone like he is so much more important than everyone in the restaurant. So finally, she leans in and says something loudly about don't worry about chlamydia. It's very treatable now or something to that effect. And so it makes him hang up. And so he's pissed. Like, who is this person who smells like lemons? And she's like, and her hair is all crazy. And like, she's so annoying and how inappropriate. How dare she talk to him that way? So then he goes and he sits down with his mother and who should come to serve them but Allie Morales. And she is not taking anything from him. She is so above his oh I'm so good attitude and so he's rude to her again and so she brings out their pizzas and his mother's pizza is beautiful and Dominic orders a pepperoni small pizza and she takes the pepperoni and she spells out F you just F you (laughs) yes and it really makes him mad and he gets her fired. Oh. Which she really shouldn't have probably spelled out F-U on his pizza. And she's aware of this. But he just really pushed her beyond the pale. His so stupid she, suit and his snotty attitude. Oh, oh, he's so self-righteous. And so she basically does a great, like, tell you off scene. And struts out of the restaurant getting 20 bucks from one table. And some money from another table. And some applause. <laughs> and... Then she goes and sits on a bus bench and she's freaking out like, okay, well, what do I do now? I got to go get another now job. Now I only have five jobs. Now I only have five jobs and I can't, <laughs> I need more jobs, which we still don't know why she has all these jobs. So to her surprise, out of the restaurant and to her on the bus bench comes Dominic's mother, who at the time she still doesn't know is Dominic's mother. She just thinks she's the woman with him. And she says, I owe you a job. Dominic shouldn't have done that. Show up here on Monday morning and I'll give you a job. (laughs) Allie's like, "Uh, are you for real? I just wrote F you on your date's pizza. (laughs) But she's desperate. I mean, really, really desperate. And so she shows up at label on Monday and she's wearing the most awesome, eclectic thrift store clothes. And she has no money, but she has so much sass and so much style and so much, so much heart. And all the like graceful gazelles at the magazine don't quite know what to do with Allie and her loud 
confident body personality. And so then Allie realizes that even though she's working in the admin pool at Label, she keeps getting thrown into situations with Dominic and she hates him. He's obnoxious and he's stuffy and irritating and she just doesn't know how to handle him. But the more obnoxious he gets, the more feisty she gets and sunshiny and bubbly. And finally, they start to wear each other down. It is a wonderful, wonderful enemies to lovers with so many deep moments, laugh out loud moments, some pretty funny scenes with rescue dog moments. Everything about this book makes me happy. And I don't want to give too much away because so much of this book is just such a wonderful, wonderful bag of joy to unpack and go through. I highly cannot recommend enough by a thread by Lucy score. It is like one of my very top favorites by this author. Mine too. It's so good. So when Stacy was talking about her first book, she mentioned that certain books get a lot of hype and we don't always like those books. No. So when Hate to Want You, which is the first book in Alicia Rye's Forbidden Heart series came out, like people were just really, really into it. And I would look at the synopsis and I was like, no, no, like this is not good. I, I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to like this. And this book came out in 2017. It is now 2022. And I just read it. Just. <gasps> and I was so surprised by how much I liked it. And now, as I think about it, like looking back at the synopsis, I can't even really tell you what it was that I thought I wouldn't like. Like, it just, I looked at the synopsis now, I was just like, no, no, this, this isn't going to be good. I don't want to read this. So Natalia, I know, loves this a lot, and a bunch of other people do too. And so finally, I picked it up, and it was amazing. So this is the story of Liddy, I'm sorry, Livy and Nicholas. And they are members of two feuding families. These families used to be really, really close. And then something very bad happened that separated them in a way that like, you almost can't get past. So Nicholas, his family is now in sole control of this company that they started together. And... Livy is, I don't know, her family is just kind of broken in a lot of ways. Um, one of her brothers has been gone for several years um, and they don't see him very much. He's kind of estranged from the family. Another one of her brothers has died. Um, her mom just suffered an injury. And Livy just she stayed away from all of this family drama. She's kept away from Nicholas. Well, she wants everyone to think she has anyway. But for the past 10 years, Livy and Nicholas, who were once best friends and high school sweethearts, they were supposed to be married. And then this terrible thing happened and they broke up. And they know that because of family loyalty, they shouldn't 
still care for each other. And so they decide that they don't really care for each other. They're just going to have sex. One night a year, they'll meet, no strings, no one will know, and eventually they'll get each other out of their systems. So this sounds good in theory, but in practice, it doesn't really work. And it's been 10 years and they're still like meeting once a year. It's not helping. But now Livy has come home to help her mom after she was injured. And she's working at a tattoo parlor. And she's kind of thinking like she doesn't need to pay attention to Nicholas. She's not going to like seek him out. She's not going to, you know, try to like, make contact with any members of his family. But he comes to see her at work. And he makes it clear, although Livy isn't always like receptive to this, that he still thinks about her and still cares about her. And in some ways would like to make up for some of the things that went wrong in the past. Now, I can't tell you what the things were that went wrong. And I can't tell you how anybody will attempt to make them right. But what I can tell you is that this is such a wonderful story of loyalty, of love, of finding your own strength and realizing your own worth, even when people around you, not, not out of meanness sometimes, but just out of a desire for you to be like the best person you can be, like they're not always as supportive as they could be. Um, there's so much more that I could say about this. I, I don't know why I waited so long to read this. The second book is now on hold for me at the library. I'm hoping oh. that it comes very, very soon. But this is Hate to Want You, Forbidden Hearts, book one by Alicia Rye. It is now on my TBR. So as Shannon can tell you, I really struggled with what my final book should be because there are so many delicious contemporary romance enemies to lovers. Oh yeah, And yes, I have read so many of them and they are my catnip and I love them and they make me happy. And if I'm having a bad day, I pick up a good enemies to lovers. But then I started thinking about it and I thought, you know, what else could I use as an enemies to lovers? Like what and all of a sudden, I thought about Halfway to the Grave, Night yeah. Huntress, number one, I know, by Janine Frost. Oh, and the this wonderful book, Tavia Gilbert reads oh, oh. Yes, she does. Yes. And this book is about Catherine Crawfield, and she goes by Cat. She's 22 years old, and by day, she's dutiful daughter of... Um, basically the, <laughs> the town Jezebel in her small Ohio town. That's not even the right word, is it? The town, um, her mother was unmarried when she was born. And so that stigma has followed her throughout her life. She lives with her mother and her grandparents on her grandparents' cherry orchard in a small town in Ohio. But by night, Kat is a vampire hunter. Because, because what of course she, she is. Of course she is. Because what she hates, hates more than anything else in the world, anything 
are vampires. She hates them because one accosted her mother and she, Cat, was the result. And so her whole life, she's contended with feeling slightly different than everyone else around her, slightly out of step. And knowing that her mother's love is tempered with the experience of Kat's conception. And so since she was 16 and found out what she was, she has felt the need to give back, to somehow atone for what happened to her mother by slaughtering every single vampire that she can attract. And so one night Kat is at a bar. And she gets a vampire to leave with her. And she flirts with him. And as he's putting the moves on her, she tries to kill him. But this vampire is a bit more savvy than all the rest. And instead of killing him, she ends up knocked out and chained up in a cave where he interrogates her incredibly roughly to find out who she works for. And the only thing that actually saves her life is the fact that something that happens to her in this cave gives away her half vampire heritage. And this is how she meets Bones. Bones is willing to train her properly to kill specific vampires. He wants to use her basically as bait to draw out some vampire creepers that he as a bounty hunter wants to get. And so after a lot of discussion and sort of (laughs) coercion, (laughs) Kat decides that, you know, she will work for bones. And, you know, this book to me is enemies to lovers, but not in the sort of formulaic way of, so many of the books that I love within this subgenre of romance because Kat legit hates and mistrusts Bones from the very beginning. She hates him. She's terrified of him. She doesn't believe, basically her mother has taught her to see vampires in sort of this narrow-minded, bigoted way of just hating the entire species. And throughout the book, her views about vampires and bones in particular slowly begin to change as they work together to bring down some of the evil vampires that bones has targeted. But, you know, it's not overnight, you know, she doesn't trust him immediately. She continues to say very scathing comments about vampires and the vampire way of needing to live that could be quite hurtful to bones. I am sure we don't actually know all of his thoughts currently. We will in April of 2022. I was going to say, but we will (laughs) when the other half of the grave comes out. But you know, Kat has a lot of character growth that needs to happen because while she is a very, brave young woman. She's a very confident young woman. She's a young woman who's been struggling for a very long time to, in air quotes, overcome her birth and to overcome the legacy of her biological father. 
And so this book is all about how she and Bones begin to kind of see past Cat's prejudices about him, but also about how Cat learns how to become a strong kick-ass heroine in her own right without prejudices to weigh her down and to hold her back. This series, the Night Hunter series, is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite paranormal romance slash urban fantasy type series of all time. And if you want to know if Cat and Bones have a future together or if they will continue fighting for the rest of time, you will need to pick up Halfway to the Grave, Night Huntress number one by Janine Frost. This book like started everything. Like it introduced oh, right? such iconic characters that I think Janine Frost like, will always be loved for. So that wraps up our episode on enemies to lovers romances. Thank you to Stacy and Sarah for such fantastic recommendations tonight. Thanks as always goes out to Christine for all of her editing. And of course we thank each and every one of you so much for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm